a banquet for Haman and the king. And she has asserted herself to be now the main character of the Esther narrative from here on out. And she's been given this assignment by the Lord to save his people, even if it were to cost her her own life. And in the remaining verses of chapter 5, we actually get a deeper look into the life of the villain of the story, which is Haman the Agagite. And what we see in this passage today, primarily from Haman, is the fragility of a man-centered identity. Why should a weak identity be something that we discuss today within the book of Esther? According to one statistic, 91% of Americans agree with the following statement. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. And as we study this passage today, because God is the one who defines who we are, we should live in light of that identity rather than looking inside of ourselves. There was a book written just a few years ago by Trevin Wax, and it's called Rethink Yourself. And in that book, he mentions the two primary ways that most people, especially in the West, go about constructing their identity. The first way is this way. Most people look deep inside themselves to find their identity, and then they look for those around them to support that identity, and then lastly, they look up for some sort of spiritual dimension to affirm what they found when they looked in and they looked around. The second approach is when people look around first at what those around them in their community think. They then look up for some sort of affirmation, and then finally they conclude by looking in. So these would be people who look around within the community to discover who they are. They then look up to see how that design is connected to some sort of higher power, and then they do the hard work of looking within to conform the expectation that other people have set for them. And the argument he makes in that book that both of those ways of thinking, looking in first, looking around, and then looking up, is wrong. But so is looking around, looking up, and looking in. And you know why both of those ways of constructing an identity are wrong? Because neither one of them start by looking up. At who God says we are designed to be in his word. The most important thing about what God teaches us about ourselves is what he says that we are. Not what our friends and family think. Not what we even think internally. While having the support and love of a community is important, and while having a healthy self-esteem is good, they cannot take priority over who God says that we are as laid out in his word. So in Esther 5 today, as we study the fragility of Haman's man-centered identity, we are going to find that ultimately Haman's identity will crumble. And here's why it's going to crumble. Three reasons. It is built on, number one, the presence and elimination of his enemies. Number two, the approval of family and friends. And then number three, 
the achievements of life. So Haman's identity, man-centered, is ultimately going to crumble because he has built it on the presence and elimination of his enemies, the approval of family and friends, and the achievements of this life. All three of those avenues lead to an identity that cannot ultimately stand under the pressures of life. Number one, the presence and elimination of enemies. Look at the second half of verse 9 from chapter 5. It says this, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Notice how quickly Haman's mood changes. We're told at the very beginning of verse 9 that he went out joyful and glad of heart. But as soon as his eyes connect with Mordecai, he goes from happy and carefree to full of rage. Has this ever happened to you before? Have you ever been in this great mood and then you walk up to somebody who you have a problem with or you might even consider them to be your enemy and your entire mood changes within the flash of an eye? Does the mere mention of that person's name, if they're referenced in a story, hearing their voice, seeing their face can take you from being in a good mood to a bad mood instantly? I know that's probably never happened to any of you, but it's happened to me. And when that happens, what we are actually saying, whether we actually communicate it or not, is that we are allowing that person to define our identity. We are allowing them to define how we are going to act and feel in this life. Haman, in our story today, could not ultimately be satisfied as a human being until Mordecai was completely out of his life. Look at what he says in verse 13. Yet all this, Mordecai says, is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Haman had to have the respect of everyone. And when Mordecai refused to bow down to him, he couldn't handle it. Because Haman's identity is wrapped up in having the respect and ultimately the worship of everyone in Persia. And the only way Haman could deal with this problem was to eliminate Mordecai. Not just simply remove him from his life, but kill him. Verse 14, it says, Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Now this is the ultimate example of cancel culture before cancel culture even existed. This is actually not even cancel culture, it's death culture. Let's just kill all of those that don't like us and disagree with us. Haman's whole plan to kill the entire Jewish people stemmed from Mordecai refusing to bow down and respect him as a powerful official in Persia. And this goes all the way back to Esther 3, which we studied some weeks ago. Here's why this all starts, beginning in verse 2 of Esther 3. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. 
Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress this command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So, Esther's plan to save the Jewish people has been constructed because Haman hates Mordecai and wants to get rid of every Jewish person because of him. Here's the lesson that I want to remind us of this morning that I have to constantly, and I mean constantly, remind myself of. Not everyone is going to like you. For that matter, not everyone is even going to love you. Even Jesus was not liked and respected by everyone. And by the way, I'm not comparing Haman to Jesus whatsoever. But not everyone is going to like you or even respect you. And many times it won't matter how much you try, you try to accommodate that person or show them an extra measure of kindness. They just won't like you. So what should Christians do when this happens? Well, we do what the Bible tells us to do. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So when someone doesn't like you, doesn't give you respect, you do the best you can to live at peace with everyone without compromising your holiness and biblical convictions in the process. It is possible despite what the culture tells us, to live with convictional kindness. You can have convictions and be loving, gracious, and kind in the process. But when someone disagrees with you or doesn't like you, perhaps because of a biblical conviction, then the only biblical option is to actually live in that tension. It's not to sacrifice the biblical conviction. It's not to hate that individual. It's to live within the tension that not everyone is going to love you or even like you. The biblical conviction cannot be abandoned or compromised. But we also can't hate those that God puts in our lives. So we're gracious to them. We show love towards them. But we stand our ground. Because there is always going to be some biblical issue that people want you to back down from. And we must remain firm in our beliefs about God's word. But also loving and gracious towards those who might disagree with us. And by the way, this is another great example from this story. That not everyone who disagrees with you is your enemy. Not everyone who disagrees with you is your enemy. We cannot forget how to be cordial 
with those with whom we disagree. So don't follow Haman's advice in this passage. You cannot always simply eliminate people who disagree with you. And you can't make everyone who disagrees with you an enemy. Because there's always going to be, for lack of a better example, another Mordecai in your life. If Haman eliminates Mordecai, there's going to be someone else who doesn't bow down to him. The problem is not going to go away by simply removing and eliminating all of those people that don't show you the respect and the love that you think you deserve. So Haman's identity is incredibly fragile at this point in the story. Because as long as you allow your enemies and those with whom you disagree to hijack where your true identity lies, you'll be miserable. Which is why we must constantly remind ourselves that if you are in Christ today, your identity is the righteousness of Jesus. He is the one who determines who you are. He is the one who says, I love you. No matter what might happen, no matter who might disagree with you, no matter who might refuse to bow down to you, even though that doesn't happen to us, We should never have such a weak identity that it is completely crumbling under the presence of those who don't like us or those who might disagree with us. So number one, Haman's identity crumbles because of the presence and ultimately the elimination of his enemies. But number two, we also see that Haman's identity is fragile because it's built on the approval of his family And his friends. Look at verse 10. After Haman sees Mordecai in verse 9. And we're told that he is just depressed and downtrodden. Look at verse 10. It says, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. So Mordecai had been shown disrespect by Haman, his ego is bruised, and he sought out those that would agree with him and that would praise him. And a quick boost, generally speaking, can always be accomplished, or a quick boost to our ego, I should say, can always be accomplished by going to those people that already think and act and affirm everything about us. So this is what Haman does. He's not getting the respect from Mordecai. He calls his buddies and he calls his wife so that they can gather around him so that he can begin to feel better about himself. It's the reminder of the greatest line from any Disney song ever made, Color of the Wind, when Pocahontas is singing to John Smith. And she says, you think the only people who are people are the people who look and think like you. Now, that's not a Bible verse, but it would be a really good one. Because so often, that's how we think. We think the only people who are people are the people who look and think like you. And this is what Haman does. Man, Mordecai, disrespectful. I don't want anything to do with this guy. So let me get my buddies and let me get my wife for a quick boost to my ego. This is how Haman's mind was working Mordecai had enraged him, so let me call all of those up that will make me feel better about myself. But many times, the very people 
that we surround ourselves with oftentimes only tell us the things that we want to hear. And those are not true friends. True friends are those that are willing to tell us the things that we don't want to hear about ourselves. If I want an ego boost, I can call my mama. She watches the live stream hundreds of times throughout the week, thinks I'm the greatest preacher since Jesus himself, right? But I don't really need that. It's great. It makes me feel good, but it's not that helpful. No, what I need is brothers and sisters in Christ who will come up to me and say, you blew it on this or that. Or your attitude regarding this situation was not in step with the truth of being a follower of Jesus. A true friend is willing to speak truth in love even when it's not what we want to hear. So brothers and sisters in Christ, as a family of faith, we are to, yes, love one another, but also rebuke and correct one another when we are out of line. We should call out sins in each other's lives, and we should urge unrepentant sinners to turn from their sin and come back to God. Jesus gives us this biblical example in Matthew 18. When he says, if you or a brother, if you have something against one another, you should go to that individual privately and address it. And if that doesn't work, take a handful of people with you. And if that doesn't work, take it before the church. See, in our Western world, with so many identities being so fragile based on what people say, we have lost the biblical art of rebuke and accountability. And Haman, who by the way is not a believer, certainly didn't have that in his life. His wife and his friends were only willing to affirm the opinions that he already had about Mordecai. He doesn't have someone in his life who can step up and tell him, hey, look, we know you don't like Mordecai, but it's a bit of a stretch to want to kill him and everyone within his entire nation. Instead, he has a bunch of yes men who just do everything that he says. What do you think would have happened in this story if Haman's wife or Haman's friends would have stood up and said, this is not right? I can tell you what would have happened. He would have killed them. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have stepped up and said, this is wrong. Haman only wanted to surround himself by people who would approve and applaud his actions. And it was his wife who actually gave him the idea to have the gallows be constructed so that Mordecai could hang from them. He even gives a nod in verse 12 to Esther. So not only does he have the approval and the Uh, satisfaction of his family and friends being for him, he is finding his identity in the fact that Esther has invited him to this grand banquet. Now, he not only has the approval of everyone that he loves, he has the approval of the queen, the second most powerful person in all of Persia. I don't know about you, but I find myself seeking quite regularly 
the approval of family and friends. The approval of even you as church members. But what Haman teaches us in this passage is at some point, our Christian faith might not always align with what our family and friends believe or how they expect us to behave. Following Jesus might mean that the relationships even with some of our family members and some of our friends will not only be fractured, but might even be permanently broken. So we must remember that our identity is not based on the approval of others because someone is always going to be disappointed with us. Someone is always going to wish that we would handle something differently. So what do we do? We build our life on Christ. Our approval is secure because Christ, in his righteousness, dwells in all Christians. So the only approval ultimately that I need to have an identity that can stand is the approval of Christ. And his finished work on the cross for me, in my place, for my sins. And no matter what might happen with family and friends, if I build my identity on who Jesus says that I am, I can stand no matter what might happen around me. But number three, we also see Haman's identity is fragile because he has built it on the achievements of life. Look at verse 11. So he gathers his friends and his wife after his ego has been bruised. And here's what he tells them. Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. So the way that Haman tries to recover from being enraged over Mordecai's disrespect was to remind himself of all of his wonderful achievements, the splendor of his riches, that's his money, the number of children he had produced, that's his procreation, his promotions, that's his career, and then being above all the other servants and officials, that's his superiority. So when Haman's identity has been weakened, he doesn't turn to God to remind him who God says that he is. He turns to all of his worldly achievements. And that is what he uses to boost his ego. Haman would have made a great American. Because so many of our idols fall right in line with the things that Haman is bragging about here. How prone are we to find our security and our contentment in the splendor of our riches, in our families, in our careers, the number of letters that we have after our names, the size of our televisions, the amount of money in our bank accounts, the cars that we drive. I mean, I'm so bad about this 
that I am genuinely offended when I go to a place that doesn't have Wi-Fi. It is like a threat to my identity. How is it possible that a place could not offer Wi-Fi, right? This is how bad we can be as Americans. And don't think you're off the hook. I've seen the way you behave when our Wi-Fi goes down. It's not any better. So we are so prone to find satisfaction and contentment in all of the very ways that Haman is bragging to his family and friends here. The rate at which we climb the company ladder and so on and so forth. And even though we're uncomfortable talking about it, we compare ourselves to other people all the time. Whether we admit it or not, we like to feel superior to others. Whether that be in terms of class, ethnicity, race, athletic ability, work ethic, intelligence. When we feel slighted, disappointed, or angry as Haman did in this passage, we are prone to return to the things that ultimately make us feel good about ourselves. And oftentimes that is not who God says that we are. But in the stuff that we own in the people that love us, in the accomplishments of this life. These are all temporary fixes to an identity that is ultimately not built on Christ. Sure, they can fix the problem for a little while, but it can't fully provide a solution because God did not design us to find complete satisfaction through these things. On almost every car I've ever owned, the front bumper gets loose for a number of reasons. Number one, I have a tendency to hit a lot of things. Number two, I always have a car that's low to the ground. So when I back up on curbs or back down, you know, the front of the bumper scrapes the concrete. And over time, the bumper dislodges from the vehicle. And I know that the car is designed to have a bumper that is fully connected to the car. But I am not about to go to some dealership for them to charge me 1200 bucks for some little piece to fix my bumper. So here's my solution. I take some screws from my house, and I take a drill, and I drill from the outside of the car those screws back into the bumper. And guess what? It normally fixes the problem. I mean, it doesn't look good, and my wife is embarrassed to drive around town with me, but it works. But here's the deal. That's not the way the bumper is designed to function, but it allows me to go on with my life without having to actually get the car fixed. And in our story today, Haman looks for temporary fixes to the fragile identity that he has. He tries to fix this fragile identity through eliminating all of his enemies. He tries to fix this fragile identity through the approval of his family and friends. And he tries to fix the fragile identity through the achievements of life. But here's the problem. Haman was not designed by God to have an identity that could be satisfied in this way. And we're not designed to have an identity that can be satisfied in this way either. We have been designed by the God of this universe in his image. Which means 
that we are to reflect who God is to the world in which we live. But there's a problem with this. Because of sin, the image that we portray has been broken and distorted. And apart from Christ, the image that we reflect to the world is like a mirror shattered in hundreds of tiny pieces. But the good news of the gospel is that that shattered image can be restored. God sent Jesus to live the perfect life we could not live, die in our place for our sins, so that that broken, shattered mirror can be replaced and we can accurately reflect the image of God as he designed it to be in the world in which we live. Therefore, anyone who acknowledges that their image is broken and they acknowledge that they have sin which separates them from God and they repent of their sins and they trust in the finished work of Christ alone for salvation can once again become the image bearer that God designed us to be in Genesis chapter 1. So there's two groups of people here today. Non-Christians, number one, if you are struggling with your identity today and wondering what your life is really supposed to be about, let me encourage you to look up first. Don't look in. Don't look around. Look up. God loves you. He created you. He designed you for a purpose. That is to give Him glory in your life. Receive the free gift of salvation that he offers to you through Jesus Christ. Christian, if you are in here today struggling with your identity, when you sin, you are actually diminishing yourself. Trevin Wax says at the end of that book that I mentioned earlier, once you are a follower of Jesus, you are most true to yourself when you are obeying Jesus and being conformed into his image. We are most like Jesus, not when we look in, not when we look around, but when we look at him. And we allow the Holy Spirit to change our hearts, to help us to walk, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. We must live the way that God has designed us to live, and that is through pursuing holiness and righteousness so that when people see us or when they see First Baptist Dothan, they are attracted to us, not because of the preaching, not because of the music, not because of the programs, but because of the holiness of our lives. People are attracted to Jesus when they see his followers pursuing holiness and righteousness, no matter what the cost. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for the example that Haman gives us, an example not to follow. If we're being honest this morning, so many of us are prone to building our identity on so many of the same things that Haman does in this passage. 
removing enemies from our presence, the approval of family and friends, the achievements of this life. God, may we take what you have taught us in this passage and remember that our identity is built on who you say that we are. So for Christians, that is children of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May that be the primary way that we think about ourselves. And for those not in Christ, who perhaps are struggling with their identity, their place in this world, I pray that they would look up to you and that your spirit would soften their hearts and draw them to faith through repentance of sins and trusting in you alone for salvation. Thank you for your spirit that abides in every Christian. May we live for you in all that we do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.